You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I don't know how the conversation goes for you when people ask you what you do. It's like, well, I'm an engineer. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. It doesn't go that way for me, ever. I have a friend who is a pastor who just moved into a small town not too far from here, brand new, uh, taking over this church. He and his family go out to eat, and they're new to town, and they finish their dinner, and the waitress walks up to them, and she says, I know who you are. You're, you're the new pastor in town. It's on us. Okay, that town is not Austin. <laughs> My experience is not like that. Maybe there are pockets that are like that, but for the most part, Uh, I think in a city like Austin, it just increasingly means less and less to be a Christian to people. Debbie and I had some neighbors over not not that long ago, and uh, we had a great time. We were eating dinner, we were talking about stuff, I think we may have played a game or we talked about playing a game, and eventually the conversation got to, wait, what do you do? And I was trying to avoid that the whole night. And I was like, ah, you know, I was a pastor, you know, just move on. And I'm not kidding, within 10 minutes they had left. And I never saw them again. They lived like five houses away. I walked past their house all the time to try to catch them. I would see them dart in. I would see the garage go down. It was crazy. Last weekend, same thing. I'm in this conversation with somebody, just getting to know, like we had something in common. We were talking about it. He's like, oh, what do you, what do, you do? And I was like, oh, well, I, you know, helped start a church. He, they literally turned around and did not speak to me again. I asked Debbie later, I'm like, am I being sensitive? Did that really happen? She's like, yeah, that happened. And it happened twice, two different people. Maybe you haven't noticed. I'm sure you have, though. As Christians, our words are losing power. Not God's word. I mean, God's word is still a power unto salvation. The gospel still brings life to those who hear it. But what I'm saying is that People in our culture are less and less willing to hear the message of the gospel from us. And I think one of the main reasons for that is is that less and less they are seeing the power of the gospel in our lives, in our actions. Our words feel empty. They feel irrelevant. And I think, um, you know, if we consider pop Christianity, if we consider what the culture might see, if we consider our own lives, I think we have to say it's a fair critique. That's why I think uh, it's a good thing that our culture is shifting in this way. Because I think it's going to help our world see more and more what the true nature of authentic Christianity is, which is word and deed in the power of the Spirit. I think that's the opportunity we have in our culture. And so how do we get there? How do we live out our faith from a position of cultural weakness? Now, we're not the first people to face this challenge. This is actually one of the questions facing the first century church. It's the main theme of this letter that we've been studying called First Peter. Peter is writing to a group of people who are Christians who are largely marginalized, largely on the outside, not people of upward mobility or influence or power, and yet he's calling them to something incredible, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have uh, spent the whole first part of this series just kind of hammering this idea of what Peter's saying. He's saying we're exiles. That's how we're to view ourselves. By nature, we don't fit in. We're different. 
And so we may operate from a position of weakness at times. And then um, he makes this shift in about halfway through chapter 2. So the first part is he's telling us who we are. We're exiles. Um, We have weakness here, but we're citizens of heaven. We have great significance and value in the kingdom of God. And now, then he shifts to how to work that out practically. And the heading for this section, you'll find it in verse 11 and 12. So chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, this is kind of the heading for this four weeks of sermons we're getting right now. This is what he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they shut their garage and go the other way, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, starting in verse 3, Peter begins to work out in, in the sort of various major areas of our lives what it looks like for them to live out their faith in the hostile world of his day. And last week we began by looking at, he was talking about how Christians are to relate to government or the state. And today he picks up another really tough situation. And he's addressing slaves or servants. We'll get to that in a second. And he's, he's telling them, now what do you do if you've got a master who's crooked, abusive, unjust? How do you, man, how do you live out your faith? How do you proclaim the excellence of God in that situation? And Peter says they can embrace their position of weakness as an opportunity to show the power of the gospel in their lives. And even though he is addressing servants, he's setting this up as a paradigm for all Christians in all kinds of situations. And he, he planted the seed back in verse 16, where he says that we are all servants of Christ, slaves to Christ. And so what he's saying is that we, today, can embrace our position of weakness to show forth the power of the gospel in our lives. Now, this is just one of those texts that just, man, it really confronts our cultural sensibilities. It just grates against us because we do not like to have the appearance of weakness. We do not like for crooked people to get the last say. We do not like for to be falsely accused or misunderstood. Like in those situations, our temptation is to fight for ourselves. But Peter's advice is simply this. Do good, even in bad situations. Do good, even in bad situations. And the emphasis is on attitude and conduct. I mean, we we would listen to that advice and be like, why? Why would you do that? What is that going to accomplish? How do you even do that in a culture like ours? Those are good questions. Those are the questions we're going to try to answer today. Now, anytime you do Bible study, uh, you're always looking at their context. You're always realizing that God is speaking through a person into a particular audience, right? These are churches in first century, like modern-day Turkey, right? So they have a particular context, and you're trying to figure out what is God saying through Peter to them. And then, once you've sort of nailed that down, you're, you're trying to build a bridge to, like, what truths and principles connect with and relate to our context, how do we live according to what he told them? Now, that, we're always doing that every time we preach a sermon. We just don't tell you that's exactly what's happening. But this text is tricky, and so I want to be really explicit about the process as we go. We're going to spend some time looking at what is, who is he talking to and what is he saying to them in their, in their world. Then we're going to make some application to our world, and we're going to focus specifically on making application to our work. I'll, I'll tell you why when we get there. But as we go, what we're going to see is that our opportunity is to do good 
even in bad situations. All right, here's the first thing. What, what is he saying to them? Who is he talking to? Who are these servants? ESV translates it servants. Uh, the version the you heard read today translates it slaves. And man, that word slaves is a pretty loaded word for us, isn't it? Uh, we're going to talk about that in a second. But let's just look at what he says to them. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In other words, do good, even in bad situations. Now, when we see the word slaves, we we are immediately thinking of our own country's history. We're thinking of transatlantic slave trade. That's not what's going on here. That's not what this text is talking about, but let's take take the opportunity to say this. Uh, The Bible outright condemns the kind of slavery that comes to our mind. And more than that, it subversively confronts all kinds of slavery. And you see that going on in this text. Uh, I can't get into all of this, but this little section is called household codes. That's not a thing that's original to the Bible that existed in Greek philosophy and literature. They believed that, you know, if, if society was going to prosper and flourish, then that had a lot to do with household relationships working properly. Imagine that. All right, so they're right, I think, on that premise. But the way that they thought was proper was really contrary to biblical principles. For example, the way that Aristotle viewed slaves was that, like, for him, he wouldn't think about slaves experiencing injustice because he would think that they're below injustice. It was a very dehumanizing view of slaves in that culture, even in Greek philosophy. So when Peter addresses slaves directly as, like, free moral agents, that is in contrast to. It is distinct from the way that their cultural thinks about them. For Peter to even acknowledge that they're experiencing injustice is to elevate their dignity as people who could, you know, experience injustice. And so the scriptures are always both explicitly and very subversively confronting the dominant culture of their day. Now, it's just important to see the differences between what's going on there and what happened in our own country's history because Like in our history, people used texts like this to justify the slave trade. Theologians that I respect use texts like this. Politicians use texts like this. And they were wrong. They were egregiously wrong. And in our day, people use texts like this to defend mistrust in the Bible. Because they see the word slaves and they think, well, yeah, the Bible condones slaves. And we know that's wrong, so what else does it say that we can't trust? In both cases, people are misapplying the text because they don't understand it. And so it's important to understand the differences. For instance, slavery in Peter's day, Greco-Roman slavery, was not race-based. All races had slaves and were slaves. Uh, slavery in that time was very widespread. Maybe like 50 to 60% of the population at times were slaves. Even some slaves had slaves. Now, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. There, there were certainly some who were forced into slavery, who had really bad situations, who were mistreated. Oh, Peter's addressing that situation. That's one end of the spectrum. But it also went all the way to the other end of the spectrum where many who were slaves went in voluntarily. Uh, we would consider them professionals. They were physicians and teachers and managers of estates. 
some people were forced in, but some people went in voluntarily because it was a means of employment. It was a means of paying off debt. Slaves in Peter's day could gain their freedom, and they often did. Right? So let me, let me just be clear. I'm not saying our slavery was really bad and their slavery was okay. All slavery is bad. It's terrible. It, it violates the design of God for humanity. I'm just trying to say they're, they're different things. What comes to our mind is not what Peter is speaking into. Peter is not even really writing to make a statement about slavery. He's writing to encourage and equip Christians to live out their faith regardless of their circumstances. And he's especially focused on people in bad situations. Unjust government, unjust masters, unbelieving spouses. People who in that time didn't have the the power or the rights or the means to change their situation but nevertheless had the responsibility and the calling to serve Christ in their situation. That, that's Peter's concern here. And this is what he instructs people in bad situations to do. Verse 18, be submissive with all respect. Submit, I think we've said before, is a military term. It just means to understand your rank and to act accordingly. So Peter is not saying be a doormat. Let people walk all over you. He's not even saying that you shouldn't work for change. You, you should within the system. The New Testament, Paul tells slaves, if they can get their freedom, they should. They should work for that. He is saying simply, generally speaking, you should understand your situation and live out your faith in that place. One of the uh, features of this letter that I love is just the way he goes back and forth constantly between giving us commands and some very difficult ones and then grounding and rooting them in the person and the work of Jesus. So we get these commands and then we get these great gospel refrains. And it sort of ends up playing like a song to me where you have these verses where he's kind of the meat of it and he's telling the story and he's giving you the commands and then you keep getting these gospel choruses, these refrains of like, oh yeah, that's the real thing that's going on here. That's what this is all rooted in. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of that in the sermon today. As we work through a command, there will always be a corresponding gospel chorus. And here's the first one. We did it in our profession of faith. Jesus did exactly what Peter is commanding them to do. The same words are used. Uh, If you want to, flip over to Philippians 2, 3 through 11. I'm just going to read it. Paul tells them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's not qualified. Count good people more significant than yourselves. No, count all people. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is where we get the power for it. What did he do? Well, though he was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what's, what's going on? 
honor through humility, power through weakness, life through death. Jesus took on the form of a servant and was submissive with all respect. Paul says, we are bound with Christ. What has happened to him has happened to us. So much that he can say, you have been raised with Christ and you are, present tense, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Peter says, you are, despite what the world would say about you, you are a royal priesthood. We can be lowly before people, even unjust people, because we are so highly exalted by God. That's what Peter tells them to do. And it's a hard command. So why should they do it? That's what he explains next. Look at verse 19. Why is he saying this? Why should they live this way? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. That is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, look, there's a number of reasons we might suffer. We might suffer just because the world is a broken place and suffering is part of the result of the fall. We might suffer because of our own sin and foolishness. We might suffer because of the sin of others. Peter's not addressing those situations, really. He's talking about when we suffer for doing good, when living out our faith brings suffering upon us. And what he's saying here is, yes, that's not only going to happen, or could happen, it's going to happen. And and when you're in those bad situations, do good. And here's why. Because this finds God's favor. There is a willingness here to endure unjust suffering. Uh, To endure means to bear up under, like with patience, to, to put something on your shoulders. He says we endure sorrows. This word just means grief or pain, or even annoyances. Got a lot of those. So we are willing to put those things on our shoulders, even when it's not our fault. It's unjust. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything for it. All we did was good, and we're willing to take on the consequences if it means suffering. And he gives us their motivation. He says, this is, it's a gracious thing when you do this. How? Or why? Why? Because you're mindful of God. Meaning, there's an awareness of God. There's an allegiance to Him above comfort or anything else. I'm willing to endure suffering because of God, is what he's saying. And uh, when the servant does this, when he takes on this attitude, he flips the script. He turns the table by showing that his service is not forced but voluntary. He serves for the Lord's sake. He can't be enslaved by any man because he's a slave of Christ. He can't be humiliated because he has humbled himself. This is the motivation. Mindful of God. And and when they're mindful of God and they endure suffering, it is a gracious thing. That's what they get. They get a gracious thing. Well, the word literally is just grace. The idea is that Uh, When someone endures suffering this way, because of God, they find God's favor. They experience His grace. They may have known that God was gracious. They may have known that in theory, but in this situation, when they endure for His sake, they, 
They know it firsthand. It's, it's palpable to them. It's, it's, it's crazy what he's saying. He's saying, like, look, if your choice is, let's get into our world, if your choice is uh, not have any suffering, which sounds great to us, but really only know about God's grace in theory, if that's one option, and if the other option is to willingly endure suffering and to take it on even when it's not your fault, but have firsthand knowledge of God's grace, have his presence and power real in your life, Peter's saying, it's kind of an easy choice. It's this one. Sounds crazy. But if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, it's not crazy. It makes total sense. That's what he wants for them. That's why he tells them to do this. He wants them to experience God. Peter's not saying, okay, look, you're powerless. People in society think you're kind of worthless. They don't really want to talk to you. So you should just kind of put your head down and settle in. This is kind of your life, you know. Don't worry, heaven will be great. He's not saying that. He's saying your low situation gives you a unique opportunity to experience God in ways that you might not be able to otherwise. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, you know, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ crucified the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then, he's, and then he tells them, and he tells us, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Doing good. Even in bad situations is a means of boasting in the Lord. When we, when we take on and we endure unjust suffering, we're communicating something. We're letting go of lesser treasures to show forth the incomparable worth of our great God. We're, we're letting go of the, the, the desire to fight back, to win, to vindicate ourselves. And we're showing forth the excellencies of God's justice. Now listen, I'm not saying we don't fight for justice. We do. We absolutely do. I'm not saying uh, that we just sort of let go and let God and get back. It's not, this isn't passive. This is active faith and trust in God. Even in the situations where we can and should fight for justice, we do so in a way that shows forth our confidence and God, and that our hope is the ultimate justice that he will bring. Our world is, is flying upside down, and the kingdom of God comes and turns us right side up. If you're flying upside down, it means you're, you're trying to find your place in this world, your sense of identity and significance. And if that's the case, you will not endure suffering, especially unjust suffering. 
because that's not what you're about. But if you're flying right side up, if you're mindful of God, the kingdom of God among us, and you're finding your sense of identity and significance in Him, you're focused on your place in His kingdom, then you can endure. And when you do, you will experience the favor of God in your life. This, this just radically shapes how we view each other, how you view people in your life, how you view yourself. We're so conditioned to assign value based on all kinds of things. Looks, dress, income, influence, uh, social status, race. We just do it unconsciously. We do it to others and we do it to ourselves. Typically, we devalue others and we overvalue ourselves based on the same things. Peter's just saying, yeah, be careful about that because if you, if you despise someone because of external things, you need to know that God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. If you view them as weak and you as strong, there's going to be shame <laughs> coming your way. And he says, be careful about judging by appearances in general because God judges the man's heart. So it's the one who is mindful of God, whose motivation is God. He's the one who finds favor with God. Again, our our tendency is to avoid suffering like at all costs, especially unjust suffering. But Peter's telling us to embrace it. And he says if you embrace it, you'll begin to see the beauty and the power of it. And not just you, but people around you. Look at verse 21. This isn't an accident. For this, to this, to this enduring suffering... You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's here's our second gospel chorus. This word example is the word for, like, you know, do you remember when you're learning how to write, you would trace over the letters in that little book with the long, big line? That's that's exactly what the word is. It's an exact copy. To to follow Jesus is is to try to copy his life, to walk in his footsteps. And so if we want to follow Jesus, it means we willingly enter into suffering, doing good even in bad situations, because that's what Jesus did. What was his example? Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is quoting here directly and drawing in this whole text from Isaiah 53, which is commonly known as like the, uh, the passage of our suffering servant. Uh, let me just, let me read some of Isaiah 53 for you because the, the gospel chorus is so rich here. Listen to what he's, Isaiah 53. This is hundreds, maybe thousands of years before Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That's Isaiah 53. This is the, the chorus in Peter's mind, and so he's thinking it through. Why? Why would we act this way? Why, when I'm insulted and ignored and treated unjustly, why would I say nothing? Because that's what Jesus did. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. His suffering was not for his own faults, but for the sins of others. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. His meekness and his silence appears throughout his life, uh, particularly at the height of injustice. So in his trial before the high priest, with Pilate, with Herod, on the cross, when people are mocking him, he is strangely silent. All he says on the cross is, it's finished, and forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The suffering servant doesn't speak. Of course, Jesus spoke words, lots of words. But the emphasis of Isaiah 53 and of 1 Peter 2 is the stunning silence of our Savior. At the height of injustice, he's silent. He submits with all respect. How did he, how did he do this? He tells us, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' submission to men was not simply submission to men. It was because he was submitting to God. Look, Jesus tells God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to enter into this unjust suffering. If there's any other way, let's do that. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And it was the will of the Father to crush the Son, just as Isaiah said. This is our calling to hand over our lives to God, to hand over our tough situations, to hand over the injustices we face to God, to endure, to wait patiently, to trust God, at times just to be silent. This is the example of our Savior, and it's our calling to follow in His steps. And when we follow him in this way, we show forth the power of the gospel in our lives because that kind of behavior isn't normal. You can't do it in and of yourself. There's got to be some explanation beyond your means, and it's the gospel. All right, what does this mean for us, briefly? 
there are lots of ways to apply this paradigm of, of what Peter's setting up to think of ourselves as slaves of Christ. I just want to think about it in terms of our work. I think that's a pretty good application here. Now look, being an employee at Dell is not the same thing as being a household servant in Peter's day. They're, that's not, they're not even that close. I will say that probably household servant has more in common with being an employee than with what we would think of with being a slave. So it's a, it's a decent application because in either, both cases we have, there's an authority above us and, and sometimes that authority is, is unjust. Sometimes we have bad bosses. Some of you might be bad bosses. It's going to be a weird sermon for you. I don't know how to do it. It's relative authority, obviously, because we can get out. That's a difference. There's lots of differences. But here's some, here's some application for us. What does it mean for us to be mindful of God in our work, even in bad situations? Well, the first thing is, is that you honor your boss, even the bad ones. Submitting is tied to honoring and respecting the person. You may not agree with them, but you treat them with dignity as a human created in the image of God. And you treat them with the respect that their authority calls for. If you can't honor the person, or the, at least the position, or the, the company, then you're in a place where you need to work through that within the system, right? not according to your own wisdom. Or maybe you need to find a different job. Now, I think you should be slow to bail, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, uh, but you can't continue to not honor if you're in that situation. At the very least, there has to be repentance and faith involved. Maybe a change, of course. There's freedom to do that. See, to be mindful of God means, even though I've got this bad boss in front of me all the time, I'm, I'm focused actually on the ultimate boss. I'm, I'm serving Christ. I'm not going horizontal with my frustrations, which is so common. I mean, how common in your workplace is it for people just to complain and throw other people under the bus and blame shift? especially the boss. People love to talk about the boss. Look, don't think I don't know you don't talk about me during the week. I know that. All right. But that's our, that's our temptation. We want to go horizontal with it. And, and what Peter's saying, no, no, no. Go vertical. Focus on, on the ultimate boss. You're following Jesus. So that means you follow his example. You refrain from sins of speech. There's no deception. There's no reviling. There's no threatening. This isn't passive. It's active obedience. It's confident patience in God. Secondly, you endure hard situations. So when you're considering the two options I, I mentioned, which is to try to work through the difficulties or go find another job, I think you should be a lot slower than our culture would tell you to be in the second option. Now look, there are times where you just realize the job you're in is not a good fit, like you're not very good at it, and, and you should do something else. And there's lots of freedom. In our, it's a great country that we live in that we can change course. And we can even talk about being you know, satisfying our passions and pursuing our dreams. That's a new thing, right? Most of the world doesn't think about that when they think about work. They think about, like, how how do I go to work? But we have that freedom. And so there's options to do that. But if what's in play is just that it's hard, that it's difficult, like, you're good at the job. You feel like you're supposed to be there, but it's just hard, and there's hard people. If that's the issue, I think you should be really slow to be on that because your job satisfaction, your passions and dreams aren't the only thing at stake. More so what's at stake is your spiritual formation and your mission with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but God is using your job and your boss, even the bad ones, to form your character, to make you more like Christ and to give you an example to proclaim His excellencies. You do that at work. It's your job. 
To be mindful of God is to say, all right, God, I don't know if I've ever done this before, but I'm inviting you into my workplace today. I want to know what you're up to. I want to know what's going on here. Why are these bad things happening? And we can look to Jesus. We can see that Jesus proves that discomfort and suffering and injustice doesn't mean God has left us. In fact, with Jesus, it meant God was with him. So maybe God's up to something in the hard stuff at work. Peter's saying, just hand these things over to God. Wait on him. See what he's up to. And that is so hard. It's hard because our tendency is to find our sense of identity and purpose in life in our work. We are our work. That's why injustice is so difficult because it's a threat to our personhood. It's a threat to our sense of, of value and significance in life. And Peter's saying, hey, you got to hand that stuff over to God. Idols are going to have to die for you to obey this passage. You can't be your work. Christ has to be your life. Work has to be work. Lastly, do good, even if it costs you. This means do good work. Work hard. Don't settle. Don't cut corners. Don't go with the flow. Work for excellency. Strive to please God in your work. Second, it means you do the right thing even when you're encouraged not to. Even when the boss is like, let's do this, and it's a little shady, like it's legal, but it's shady. You don't do it. It's not submissive, with all respect, to disobey God. You submit to him insofar as you can obey God. And when you can't obey God, you do the right thing. Even when people are going horizontal, they're undermining authority, they're contaminating the culture, you don't play that game. You confront it, you get out of there, you don't join in. You do good, even if it costs you. And so let me ask you, are you mindful of God at work? Is he your motivation to work? Some of you just think of work as like a, just a means to get some income, get to the weekend. And I'm just saying, God wants to transform your attitude and your sense of purpose at work. He is about your formation and your mission at your job. I mean, you spend more time there than anywhere else. Of course God is at work there in your life. Some of you are just the opposite. We've mentioned this. Uh, Work is your life. Your identity is based in accolades and the praises you get from people and the achievements you mount up. And God wants to transform your attitude too. He wants to transform your ambition so that you delight more in finding favor with God than in finding favor of man in your work. When we work unto God, we find his favor. You might not get promoted. You might not get accolades. You might not get the income level that you want, but you get God. That's better by far. It's not even close. And your joy in experiencing the grace of God will speak volumes to a world that is routinely disappointed because they're trying to find their sense of fulfillment in their work. That's how you show forth the excellencies of God without saying a word. Last gospel chorus, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Uh, Jesus suffered a death that was reserved for Roman slaves. He took our place. He became a slave so that he could die for us. He dies for us so that we can live for him. That's what Peter's saying. Having died to sin, you now live unto righteousness. And you do that because you are in him. You have his life, his power at work in you. Jesus dies for us so we can live for him. It's awesome. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.